Welcome to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Get ready for the latest veterinary news, information and entertainment. Don't forget to visit us at the Vet Gurus website, vetgurus.com. Now, sit back, relax, it's over to the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Welcome to the Vet Gurus, Brendan here with Mark. It is the weekend in 5th of April. 2019 episode 77 mark we've had a gee we've had an interesting week um didn't didn't i I have to we had a meal together we had a meal together we did we caught up didn't we mark we um we had a a a meeting didn't we We a (laughs) meeting uh with another good friend of ours robert johnson ex AVA Australian Veterinary Association president and future and we, podcast interviewee. I yes, we will have it. We we must interview Robert. We might, it was probably a little bit noisy at the restaurant there um, to interview him, but we will have him as as one of our one of our topics, one of our main topics. And just happened to be that the two of you are down here in Melbourne, and um, you were kind enough to head out, and we met halfway, and we had dinner, didn't we? And it was a, it was a good catch up, wasn't it? Although the, I must admit the waiting staff were, had a little bit to, desi- <laughs> to be desired. It um, it was a little bit of a wait for well for everything, wasn't it? Well, but look, the company was excellent, and I think to be fair to the wait staff, um, they 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 were breaking in some new recruits and teaching them the ropes, so they they weren't as you know, crisp and organised as we normally expect, but they did okay, Brendan. They weren't bad. They weren't nasty. They were nice people, and the meal was good, and the company was even better. And we had a few, a few laughs and a um, couple of couple of ales, and uh, yeah, it was good. And it always um, time flies when you're having fun. So it went very quick, didn't it? The dinner and. Um, then we all went our, our separate ways. But that next day, Mark, after we had that dinner, gee, we had a busy day at work. I think I had something like five surgeries booked in for me late that morning, although I'd only eventuated to be three or four of them. But some very interesting cases. I had two rabbits that I expected that uh, may not survive the anesthesia for, for various reasons. And the one that I thought was the most most risky that we wanted to anaesthetise to at least do a bit of a workup. It was a rabbit that, a rabbit that for forever and a day that the client has had it snores very loudly. Mark um, sounds like me, doesn't it? And uh, it, um, and the owner didn't think much of it. Um, but in the last two weeks or so, it has become uh, distressed with its breathing and um, its respiratory rate on examination in the consultation. I think its respiratory rate was something like 70 or 80, Mark. So it was Jeez, pretty, um, pretty fat and it was um, it was a bit laboured, so it was a little bit distressed. And I, we had a bit of a discussion about what to do. And it's a rabbit that's also confirmed um, renal compromise. So it has kidney issues as well. And it's not a young rabbit. So we had multiple issues going on with it. But we, we decided... Um, in conjunction with the owner, that we're going to risk it and anaesthetise it and do a bit of a workup. So we we anaesthetised it and um, took some radiographs of the the head. Had a bit of a poke around in the mouth. Um, took some chest radiographs and they looked all good. And then I decided to 
poker metal rod down at Mark, so I, I popped an endoscope down into its pharyngeal laryngeal region, and I think we have a um, well, I'm fairly certain it has a laryngeal paralysis. Wow! I don't don't do not think I've ever seen a rabbit with laryngeal paralysis, and I did a bit of a did a bit of a literature search today actually, um, because I might have to do a little case study on it, maybe perhaps for our conference this year. Um, and I couldn't find any references in rabbits, definitely, without um, there's no published information about laryngeal paralysis in rabbits. So if any of our listeners have seen laryngeal paralysis in a rabbit, please um, fire off an email to vetgurus.com. Yeah. Um, so, and I connected up the little video and um, took a... Took a um, Little capture of it, Mark. So I've got a nice little video of the um, of the glottis and the laryngeal folds there, and they to me they're, they're certainly a little bit swollen as well, but they're not um, not um, abducting um, as they should um, is or abducting. Way, way yeah. cool, Brendan. That is so cool. Um, there's every reason I anatomically to think that because um, uh, I've had a couple of cases that I thought might be LARPAR and rabbits. They turned out not to be my ones, but um, that he, um, you know, the, all the anatomical reasons for the length of the recurrent laryngeal nerve exist in rabbits, and they get problems, particularly in the mediastinum, which might at times lead to um, to problems with that nerve. And so, it's hardly surprising that uh, that there are actually cases, and it's just typical of you to keep looking until you find one. Well, I wasn't particularly searching for that, but um, I was actually quite surprised when I had a bit of a look at the glot- glottis area and I thought, hmm, this looks interesting. There's not much moving in the actual um, hole entering into the trachea there was um, very, very small. So no wonder it's struggling a little bit to breathe and, and snoring when it's asleep as well. And funnily enough, that was a rabbit that... Um, it, it absolutely sailed through the anaesthesia and um, recovery and was eating within 10 minutes of um, waking up from the anaesthetic. Um, and it was the other rabbit that that um, died from some complications and that was another very difficult one as well. So what's your plan? So, what's the treatment plan? Yeah, what's my plan? Well, um, write it up as a case report is the plan. Um, yeah, so the, I suppose the question is what's caused it um, is, is is a query and, um, you know, whether it is tied in with it's had some sort of issue there in the background and, and why has it flared up in the last couple of weeks or so or is it um, just related to the last few weeks there? So um, I have placed it on a course of meloxicam, even though it has renal issues because I'm just worried about that swelling that I saw in that area. So we put it on a fairly low-ish dose of meloxicam, hopefully to act as a bit of an anti-inflammatory, and I'm, I'm hoping to plan on sedate or anaesthetise it again um, fairly soon and, and to do a bit of a comparison and see if things have changed there, Mark. Um, I don't think I'll be um, considering doing a, a um, surgery and... Um, cutting away you know that um one side there i suppose is the way to do it and if i was going to do that i'd be doing it from a uh a you know externally and we're not gonna, i'm not going to be able to get down there with any instruments um from an oral approach but um i prefer not to do that and i think and the owner's a very good owner and um she's um we had a long discussion about um anesthetic risks and um 
she was quite keen on, look, let's just go for it because, you know, if there's any quality of life issues, she'll certainly consider euthanasia um, the minute I, I recommend that. So we will see. It's, um, yeah, fascinating and, um, yeah, got some groovy video, Mark. I'll have to show it to you even um, regardless of whether or not we um, – I present it somewhere. Yeah. Well, I like that. So, one of the things about that case, Brendan, that I just, it's a, um, it always uh, gets me a bit excited how, um, how many things we see, particularly in exotic animal practice, in where we're looking at unusual animals, that we do regularly see things that uh, aren't in the literature. And just a bit of a shout out to all the people who listen to us, just definitely scan through the literature when you see something odd and, and, uh, and whether it's in our YouPav uh, um, newsletter here in Australia or at one of the conferences or um, each of the unusual pet avian groups in each of the countries who listen to us, they're, they're searching for this sort of stuff. And to build up a bank you know, of case studies which give people clues about what might happen in particular species just enhances the quality of life for those animals we see in the future. So... I love it every time you tell me one of these stories that you've found a case of something that's brand spanking new, Brendan. Well, I think, and, and um, today it was good timing because today I had um, Maddie, who's um, a, a um, fairly new graduate. She's been out a year or so, and she'll be doing a little bit of work with us. So she's spending every second Monday, I think, at the moment, um, with us just just shadowing me and. Um, um, I went through the case with her and I think it was a good example of, and I, I, I must admit I failed to do it most of the time, that you need to just go back to basics with a lot of these things and, and just sort of try and go back to, you know, what system is affected with this animal and um, slowly narrow it down and not have those blinkers on and just, just jump to the jump to the common common illnesses that we see with them and, um, you know, just, just work through the, the logical approach to them and, and, and get back to basics and sometimes you end up with something fun like this, um, although it's not too fun for the rabbit in question. But, yeah, watch this space. We'll see what happens, Mark, and um, I'll um, keep you informed and our listeners informed. So that's what I've been up to. What about yourself? Well, you know I spent some time in Melbourne and um, most of my Saturday, after my meetings Thursday and Friday, most of my Saturday was spent um, with my wonderful uh, young niece and um, she's developed a very, very, very sad affliction, Brendan. It's just, I just worry about her future. She's fallen in love with horses and she's joined a pony club and she's uh, taking riding lessons and crikeys, I feel for her poor mum. Has she borrowed your credit card? <laughs> I've managed to lock it away. <laughs> yes. Well, funnily enough, I do have a story about um, horses, don't I? I um, mean, in, in our news news items in a minute, but um, um, yes, um, the the few people that I've seen who's, who's who have um, become besotted with the equine industry and um, looking after horses, yeah, they go full on, don't they? And particularly at that age, 13-year-old girl, she um, cannot talk about anything else. But that's, a, I suppose, from from my point of view as a, an uncle trying to stay in touch with their niece, um, it's great to have a, uh, a topic that, um, well, I look foolish talking about sometimes, but at least I can talk about it. So um, there are... So we are out there drenching and uh, jabbing and doing a bit of hoof work, um, trimming and... That's yeah. why I've got such a sore back. <laughs> 
Excellent. Well, um, I think we should jump into some news. But just before that, Mark, uh, we should say hello to one of our sponsors, and that's Chemical Essentials, who we haven't uh, mentioned for a while. And that's the wonderful Andrew here in Australasian region and um, the F10 products. And um, tell you what, we splash it around our clinic a, a fair bit, and we encourage the clients to do the same at home. So, yeah. Thank you, Andrew, and thank you for F10. It's a good product. Um, what's the first news story, Mark? Oh, the first news story, Brendan, is um, I'm going to start with um, insectivory. Now, not, you know, we talk about insectivorous reptiles very often and some of the insectivorous birds, but this article um, is talking about uh, human consumption of um, insects. Probably, um, you know, it's uh, certainly been a, a growing area of interest. Uh, but this particular report uh, talks about the attitudes of um, the survey, which talked to US and Indian respondents and asked them some several interesting questions about, um, about uh, eating insects. And, you know, I think uh, that it's going to be more, these questions are more and more important as, um, as over time, the the uh, particularly the sustainability and some of the ethical questions of uh, keeping um, uh, protein rich um, food stuffs such as um, uh, you know the mammals or the fish or uh, chickens that we use to provide the basis of our protein, um, the ethics and and sustainability of those industries when compared to the same quality of protein produced by insects is i mean it's just no competition there um the insects take up much less space there um they're not nearly as uh they don't produce nearly as much waste and particularly those greenhouse gases that are the one of the byproducts of ruminant um farming ruminant production um there's a whole bunch of reasons that insects are going to become much much more important so attitudes to them while they're likely to change how they are at the moment is um is really uh, really very important and i was surprised by this uh, survey brendan because i would have thought my initial sort of like surface um uh, initial impression was would be that the the um the people from the subcontinent um would be more open and accepting of a variety of different foodstuffs yes that was my sort of initial impression but the survey was exactly the opposite that um uh over 80% of the US respondents were willing to try eating bugs where only about uh, 33% of the Indian respondents were. 16% of the US group had already eaten insect in some form. Um, so, and that, you know, is four times, only 4% of the Indian popular, the Indian survey group had done the same. Um, funnily enough, the biggest factor in this, Brendan, was... Um, there was two factors which seemed to be good predictors of support for the practice of human insectivory. Um, the first one was uh, disgust. People who <laughs> were disgusted by the concept yes. um, did not partake, did not intend to partake. Hardly a surprising um, correlation, I would have thought. But interestingly enough, um, religi religiosity 
was also important. The more um, religious the respondent was, um, the more likely it was that they would not eat insects. Um, so, so yeah, I was I was genuinely surprised by this, Brendan. Yes, although looking, that they did a little bit of a comparison, didn't they? And they worked out the 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 waste production and the calorie production, and they 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 happened to choose comparing crickets and and dried crickets, I think, and how many calories it takes, and and cricket flour um, compared with a whole roast chicken mark, um, which provides around two twelve hundred calories. Um, and that uh, a single chicken provides as much nutrition as nearly 8,500 house crickets. And um, talking about the ethics of, of and, and the waste of, of those two um, um, comparing them, Mark. But um, I think one of the key factors is, um, you know, especially for those Indian um, group there, and, you know, my recent visit there is that butter chicken certainly tastes a lot better than crickets. <laughs> I'm sorry, but um, it, it's true. And, if, and my... And my um, my girls wouldn't be happy with me saying that, but um, they'd want me to be eating the crickets. But um, you know, did, did, some, some facts, some facts, um, just uh, urge <laughs> that. You know, <laughs> did you? Did you? Um, did you? While you were there, partake? Maybe you could have buttered crickets and. Uh, but I do, or 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 tandoori yeah. crickets. Yes, um, I, I I'm I, I'm trying to wreck my brain or my brains. There's not too many of them left. Um. I did not see any insects um, for sale there, I don't think. Perhaps maybe in a couple of the markets. I'll have to ask the girls about that. Um, yeah, so, but no, it's a, it was a very, some amazing photos again in that article, Mark. The as other well. thing that I, um, I found um, really interesting was that, you know, that comparison that you made between butter chicken and butter house crickets, um, that, uh, that there was a single life that was the price paid for you to have a um a lovely meal of buttered chicken whereas for that future meal of buttered house cricket there's going to be eight and a half thousand house crickets um perish oh, yes and so i don't know is 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 um is the death of eight and a half thousand individuals uh, worse than the death of one there are so many ethical that do insects have um Similar, they contain. They then their their nervous system has nociceptors. So, um, do they suffer pain? Do they do they do we make them more or less happy by culturing them? These are. Do they have a conscience? Oh. Anyway. Well, Mark. Speaking of horses, <laughs> France has banned the trimming of horse whiskers, and you may think this is a bit pedantic and a bit silly, but. When you think about it, it's um, it's it's an important decision based on welfare grants and the French S Equestrian Federation FFE. Be careful how I pronounce that. Has banned the removal of a horse's whiskers on welfare grounds, and it joined several other countries, Mark, including Germany and Switzerland, in bringing into effect a rule that would disqualify any horse from competition if the whiskers have been removed um, because the vibrissae, which are the long tactile hairs around the eye and nose and mouth of the horse, are sensory organs. 
and they think that they do have a pretty key part to play with the horse for gathering information about the environment, especially around the area where they have a bit of a blind spot um, around the nose, um, where they can't see on that tip of that. Um. So I'm, I'm, I don't know, do you, do you know why they would be doing that, why they would be trimming the whiskers? Is, is there a potential potential advantage to to? To the horses that are riding, that are racing, that if you trim their whiskers, they're they're, they're because they're not going to feel it. They're not going to bash around in the in the at the start of the race. All, race all or the horses I looked at on the weekend had their whiskers, and um, and I'm not under any um, like I don't know of any reason that they you know whether it's just grooming so that they look a particular way. I don't. I, I honestly can't tell you, but um, but I I do think it's a um. It's a perhaps it's yeah perhaps it's for yeah for those equestrian um, display sort of um, equestrian events that they, um, that the horses are all groomed to to excess aren't they and they plait the mane and all that sort of thing and maybe they do it as part of those rather than standard horse racing as such. if anyone knows drop us a line so we can figure it out but it's just it's a wonderful mark of the time that we live in that uh, that that there are people and particularly you know the horse industry the equine uh, um the uh, i can't remember the the french equine federation um probably takes a little bit of a, a hit every once in a while and so that they're aware of the significance of the vibrissy um and that they're concerned enough about the welfare of the horses to ensure they don't get chopped off that's a good thing brendan Yes, and I think it's a, the reason that um, all the all the hipsters in Melbourne here, Mark, they oh, don't want to um, shave off their, in, their moustache you know, and their little five-day growth. On the weekend, yeah. and um, I did on Friday night, we went to uh, one of the smaller venues for the Melbourne International Comedy Festival to listen to a few jokesters after yes. I'd listened to you jokesters a few nights before, and um, my God. Goodness, the number of hipsters that are in Melbourne. The the the, the, oh, the beard oh, beard trimmers. That's where the business to go into, Brendan. Beard trimmers. Beard trimming. Well, yes, there we go. The whiskers. So what's your Last news well, this okay. news story. Um, we sort of um, at uh, the Vet Guru's uh, podcast center here. We um, have a particular connection with um, some of the researchers who did the initial uh, outstanding work to identify the chytrid fungus. Um, and a recent study has um, from ANU has revealed. Um, you know, it's been a bit of a review across the amphibian species around the world to to give sort of like a cumulative uh, quantification of the worldwide impact of chytridiomycosis. Um, and, uh, um, well, I don't know. Um, we've always known that it's been... Um, it's been devastating, a devastating disease, and we know that it's been involved in a number of... Um, uh, a number of um, extinction events, um, but um, the numbers are just painfully astounding. That um, more than five hundred, at least five hundred and one species, had had a significant decline as a direct result of the chytrid fungus, and ninety 
of those species are now confirmed or presumed extinct. Um, and that's only been uh, since 1998. In the last 20 years, we've lost around the world 90 species of amphibians. Um, so we always knew over those couple of decades that uh, chytrid fungus was a bit of a bastard of a disease for our amphibians. Um, and we knew that it stretched, you know, all the way around the world and um, caused problems at various locations in each continent uh, besides Antarctica. Um, and there are some, uh, there is some evidence that there's no decline in Asia, in, in most Asian species, because many of those species have evolved a natural resistance. But in South America and, and uh, Eastern Australia, um, geez, it's been devastating, um, and the the uh, even some uh, landmark species like the corroboree frogs um, were on the brink of extinction as a result of chytrid fungus. But uh, fortunately, large scale captive breeding in the zoos has uh, worked to prevent the possibility of the extinction of those lovely little yellow and black special frogs. Um, and the one, one of the comments in this that really struck me was that um, we're, we're well aware of the devastating effect that feral cats have on our, um, you know, our small, uh, in, uh, our small native animals, uh, the, the smaller mammals and, and our reptiles. But um, in terms of scale, chytrid is having the same sort of impact on our amphibians. So it's, um, it's just, a sad thing, Brendan. Yes, it's a bit mind-boggling, isn't it? The number of the number of species, and it it won't stop now. It's going to be a it's going to be ongoing, isn't it? And um, you know, we are lucky in that um, we both have well, we have two of the leading researchers, don't we? Um, the two Lees, he Lee and she Lee. Um, so Lee Garrett and. Um, Lee Berger, um, who were both up in Townsville, and they both moved down to Melbourne, Mark. I don't know whether you've known that. Um, so they both um, moved back to Melbourne University and they're working with the One Health Research Group um, in epidemiology. So, And um, Lee Berger was um, the person um, she originally discovered the the disease process um so that's her claim to fame and um they're both they're, they're a um, husband and wife um and they were if you remember that I, I think i might have mentioned in a previous podcast but they were the year below me at university um in vet school and yeah we called them he lee and she lee because they were a couple for a while um during the course and eventually um got married and they're both lovely people and um yeah it's um it's 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 amazing when you sit and chat to people like this, and you think, "Gee, how um, how insignificant our brains are, or my brain is when I chat to some well, of some, smart people." Mark, you, you know, uh, you uh, my um, most severe case of um, of uh, imposter syndrome. So I know exactly what you mean, and um, just to uh, bask in the reflected glory of the outstanding achievements, and just to know that people of of uh, that experience and intellect uh, still working in the sphere of One Health and biosecurity. And, and of course, um, you know, these are not going to be the only threats to our native animals, and it's great to know that, uh, um, that we're acquiring knowledge that uh, hopefully will limit the chance of events like this 
uh, becoming more complex or more frequent in occurrence. So, yes. Well, my last news story is, um, well, it's a quick one, Mark, and it's, as usual, it's a bit of a silly one, and the headline is Trump official who says air gun tests don't hurt whales blasted with air horn, and I think you've seen this video, and I'll have a link to the video on our vetgurus.com website, and I encourage everybody to have a look at it because it's quite funny. Um and it's about an official, Chris Oliver, who's an assistant administrator for fisheries in the USA, had told the Natural Resources Subcommittee that firing commercial air guns underwater, which they do every 10 seconds in search of oil and gas deposits over a period of months, would have next to no effect on the endangered animals which use echolocation, obviously, with whales, etc., um, and to keep track of their, their youngsters and to feed and to mate. And um, so um, one of the one of the officials, officials there, I think it was Democrat Congressman Joe Cunningham, used an air horn to, and he blasted the air horn during the um, little subcommittee um, meeting to demonstrate um, the sort of sound that was happening and then quizzed... Um, Quizzed, um, quizzed Oliver about it and said, um, you know, is that is that annoying this air horn? And um, and he and he sort of um, said, oh yeah, it's a little bit annoying because you're only twenty feet away from me. And and um, he then asked him, um, well, um, how how much um, louder would that be? Um, he told him the sound from air guns underwater would be sixteen thousand times that of his air horn that he'd just blown. So. He made a very good point with a pra- – it's probably something I'd do, isn't it, Mark? Um, um, a very practical um, sort of demonstration about um, the potential damage that these um, blasting, these sounds underwater would have on, on the animals that are living there in the ocean. So a bit of a fun video and um, a bit of um, – maybe a bit of clickbait, as you like to call it, Mark, but um, it brightened my day. That video, it brightened my and day. And let, let's so hope that the story. consequence of your last news story is that that um, thinking outside the square and making a practical demonstration, practical dramatic demonstration that uh, that has sort of generated some uh, online um, understanding of the consequence of noise. Let's just hope that that's enough to overturn the uh, the uh, permission that the NOAA gave for companies to uh, seismically explore for resources. I don't hold my breath, Brendan, but I hope it does. Yes, I would not hold your breath. Well, on that note, holding your breath, let's not hold our breaths and let's move on to our main our main topic this week, which um, you're <laughs> going to lead off, Mark, because you did suggest it. And um, the one thing I'm going to say first up, Mark, is no, don't ask me about a list of, of potential um plants that may cause an issue here because I'm not going to give you them. Well, actually, I may. Um, so our topic is plants for exotics or, um, uh, you know, so can you feed or give or expose unusual pets to plants and which plants should you expose them to and are they toxic or poisonous and are they useful for environmental enrichment? And if so, what one? how should you use them? So. 
Yeah, well, let's get stuck I into it, Mark. You've so sort of where do you want to start? Because the whole, my whole premise here, the starting point, if you like, is that, um, is that if you look online, you will find lists, and they're good lists. I don't, uh, I don't want to disparage anyone who's taken the time to make a list. They're often um, relatively one-dimensional, as in just a simple list of plants. They often are derivative. They're often derived from other lists, and that's not necessarily a bad thing, particularly if the other list they've been derived from is a decent one. Um, And they are scary. The lists are bloody scary because there's lots and lots of plants. Absolutely. Well, I'm going to – I've got one of these lists in front of me. Interrupting you there, Mark. So I'm going to read one. I'm not, I'm not going. It's it's supposedly potentially poisonous plants um, on a on a website for uh, rabbits. Okay, for for care of rabbits. And um, just let me read a couple of these: amaryllis bulbs, apple seeds, azalea, bird of paradise, bloodroot, buttercup, black locust, boxwood, buckeye, buckthorn, caladrum, calla, castor bean. Seeds, Christmas rose, cornflower, crown of thorns, daffodil, daphne, delphinium, dumb, dumb cane. I've never heard of that one. Eggplant, elderberry, elephant ear, flowering tobacco, foxglove, holly, horse chestnut, nuts, hyacinth, iris. I've, I'm stopping there. There we go. We're up to I. Um, and it does go, and there are, there is, there's no Z mark, but there is a, a, a Y. There's U and wisteria for W and water hemlock. Um, so yes, I agree completely with you. And that there's a lot. There's a lot of these websites that have long lists like this one of potentially toxic or poisonous plants for the animals. And uh, I'm going to throw back to you because here yeah, I don't think they. they I don't they, think they, they do. help that I much. Think, um, do they, Mark? I think they make people very very worried, um, and they cause a lot of um, distress. And look, I, I have a tendency to say to people, you know, common sense is a good starting point. And there are some, you know, what's the word, deadly nightshade, probably a good one to give a miss. Um, but there's lots of plants there that um, there are particular parts of them that will be problematic at particular times of the year. Um, and so I understand why um, lists like this are sort of you know, absolute in their um, in their uh, um, declarations, because if they don't put a plant on there, and people use it at a particular time, um, then there sometimes are potential for issues. Um, but geez, Brendan, I don't, uh, I don't know that. Um, I think that a lot of, uh, particularly our herb and rabbits, are probably the one that jumped to mind immediately. Um, they're they're very, very, very good at um, um, eating a whole lot of fairly bad stuff and um, and coping with it uh, much better than, say, our, our regular dogs and cats do. <laughs> I had myself on mute as usual there, Mike. Um, absolutely, and the classic there is is certainly rabbits with, with that. And you, you consider how well rabbits have done. Um over most of the world, and and um, they're eating all sorts of stuff, even here in Australia. And the, and the classic thing I usually quote with rabbits here is that um, 
on some of these lists or a fair number of these lists, they have they have um, they have eucalyptus and, and eucalyptus leaves and, and um, other sort of native native vegetation listed as, as as toxic or highly toxic to rabbits and and I'd expect that um, we wouldn't have much of a rabbit problem, um, especially in central Australia, if that was the case, Mark, because in certainly a, a fair number of places in Australia, that's um, that's perhaps the only the only um, product they have access to for a potential food source. And yet they breed like rabbits, Mark. And um, I know I've mentioned this to you before. I've, I've only ever seen one confirmed toxicity with rabbits and that was two young rabbits that were found at the base of an avocado tree with a half-eaten avocado um, in the backyard and they were both brought into me comatose um, with the avocado <laughs> and um, one died and one survived with supportive care so that's you know that, that's literally the only rabbits I've seen with with confirmed toxicity mark and so yeah, you know, um, you did mention there are certain products that are that that we know are toxic, and I certainly stress avocado to, to rabbits as as being one of those. But you know, they're, they're they're very tough, aren't they? Some of these species that that we deal with um, with coping with a large variety of vegetable matter that that other species, you know, ra- rabbits, for instance, can chew on a. A lot of plant material that would knock exactly. around a cow or exactly a right. Horse and I think um, the other factor um, is that uh, in the wild they probably are nibbling at um, at some of these less pleasant uh, potentially uh, plants that can, can contain toxins. At some point, they're probably um, having a go at those. At particular, like in a mix of things that they're eating, whereas in captivity they might be. You know, chucked a whole handful of um, of those things all at once, and they're probably less familiar with them. So, um, uh, they when they get a whole lot of them all at once, they tend to have a go at them. But I think uh, I think I'm I'm definitely like you, less worried about um, toxicities in rabbits, uh, particularly the rabbits that have experience around their yard, um, um, and particularly with things like. Uh, um, eucalyptus, which I have heard listed as a problem for rabbits, um, I we we now um, regularly recommend the rabbits that we see have a little bit of a, a log or something to chew on, um, particularly uh, to exercise those muscles of their face, and they love um, uh, apple branches and uh, um, and uh, eucalypt branches and. Um, and certainly those plants are often on those sorts of lists and I worry far less about them than I once did. Yes, yes. And it's a fairly, and I'm sure you have the same, it's a fairly frequent question we have with new new rabbit clients that they may even bring in some of these lists and they're very, or, or certainly been looking online and they get very confused about, hey, what, what should I feed my rabbit? And I've heard that there's all sorts of toxic plants and here's a, here's a five page, page list of all the toxic plants for rabbits and, and what should I feed them? I, I've, I've been told I only, I only should feed one particular type of hay and a limited number of vegetables that I get from the, from the supermarket or the green grocers. And, um, 
I tend to be fairly broad with it, Mark. Um, I, I just normally say to them, look, if it if it's a grass or a weedy type type grass um, product and it's um, growing naturally um, from the ground ground upwards, and it's not an ornamental plant or 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 a um, potted sort of um, plant that's used for um, that's housed inside, um, I, I usually say to them, look, just let them have a bit of a chew on it and. Um, and um, I try to keep it fairly simple with them, and that includes, yeah, those apple trees they love, apple branches, and and um, you know, um, we've, you know, we, we talk a lot about environmental enrichment, don't we? And um, having something for them to chew around, chew on, and, and throw around and, and play with, not just the rabbits, but all the other species or some of the other species that we'll chat about um, today in this podcast. Um, they need, we need to exercise their brains as well as their as And I think your, their, um, your general rule, um, you know, to be careful of the ornamental plants, um, that's probably a pretty good guide uh, if, if they're um, – a lot of those plants have become ornamental because they're um, resistant to being chewed up by animals in the wild like rabbits um, and they have fairly bright – um, colours, um, which once again highlight the possibility that they've got something that might be a bit toxic. So, all those sorts of um, plants, I would, I'd feel comfortable avoiding. But anything that's sort of in the lawn um, that uh, sprouts up uh, in a uh, paddock, um, uh, most of the time, the ones that are um, that are dangerous, the rabbits are going to avoid having a go at. Um, uh, they're going to be, and when they do have a little bit of it, um, then then it's in part of their broad diet. It seems to cause not nearly as much problem as as potentially it might. There are certainly other health issues in terms of diet that I worry about much more with our rabbits. Yes, and a a lot of what we've just said I think can apply to to guinea pigs as well, Mark, um, to a fairly broad broad approach to that as well. So what about our birds? Um, what, do you, what, what comments do you want to make about or a summary of, of, of um, these plants in birds? What should we feed or not feed? And, and um, well, I think, um, do we need them? Well, um, or do the funnily birds enough, need? I think the same general principles apply and obviously um, the same a general principle as applies to avocado, we really, really want to avoid um, those plants um, because of the cardiac effects that are slight, probably slightly more pronounced in bird species. Um, but um, I see some of these lists for birds, and um, and uh, and while under very specific circumstances, some of those plants might um, might uh, carry some uh, risk of toxicity um there's an awful lot of those plants i see birds in the wild feeding on routinely um and uh and i think particularly in terms of uh engendering uh environmental enrichment for our pet birds i i'm a powerful advocate of providing them with some plant material and i regularly say to people that um you know all the we have not had a problem with any of our um, eucalypts or any of our proteaceous plants, the the um, grevilleas and banksias, and they're excellent activity um, uh, enrich, you know, environmental enrichment to encourage the activity. And certainly for many of our lorikeets and uh, parrots, the the, uh, the they can gain some nutrition from the 
the uh, the, the uh, eucalypt flowers and the grevillea flowers. Um, and additionally, we like the same from the same family as the eucalypts, the the uh, um, bottle brush, the calistamons, and the um, and the uh, tea trees. Um, these are all excellent plants to allow the birds to have a crunch on the seed follicles, and um, and uh, and they would naturally eat those the seeds that come from those seed pods, the the gum nuts or the the um, the follicles that run along the bottle brush stem after the flowers have been fertilized so we do tend to encourage people to allow their birds to have access to to those things but as we said before and particularly it seems to be a thing for free-ranging birds in houses i suppose a lot of those sort of ornamental house plants the lilies the madonna lilies or um uh, those sorts of plants that are common in houses, um, they will be not often on the floor where the rabbits can get them, um, where our cockatiels and eclectus parrots that free roam through the, through the house will um, uh, definitely uh, um, gain access to those things. And it's surprising how they'll uh, not touch them for several years and then uh, have a go at them and often just have a go enough to... Uh, feel nauseous not to develop. Uh, we don't see very many serious cases of birds um, outside of avocado of uh, having serious systemic illness, um, but occasionally it does happen, and um, and so it's good to have uh, just be aware that those plants um, potentially could be a problem and shouldn't be given free access to those ornamental plants. Indoor plants should not be given free access to birds as they wander through the house. Yes, and it's it's amazing watching them have a bit of a play with those gum nuts and 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 tinker around um, and and spending time and exercising those those brains of theirs um, instead of eating those boring um, boring um, pelleted foods. I reckon it's, it's an it's excellent thing to do to take some of the spent follicles. The environmental enrichment is excellent, and to take you know whether it's the cassiarina follicles or the um, banks ears and wedge their their favourite pellets, or um, you know we don't want to give them too many seeds. But if they've got a favourite seed, to encourage them to, like you said, tear the thing apart. It's excellent. You know that's what their brains have evolved to do, and um, and far too often we do the smorgasbord style of uh, feeding birds, just uh, dumping a several days caloric intake into a bowl. And um, being genuinely surprised when they um, they consume it very quickly and then get bored very shortly afterwards. Yes. So, what well, about plants for I have one. Mark? My first comment is is um, <laughs> I don't, I'm, I'm interested in uh, an answer to a question that you might provide, Brendan. I've um, there's been several times that we've had to remove plastic plants um, from particularly bearded dragons seem to get to a point where they um, they uh, are interested in having a crack at the green thing sitting in the corner um, and um, and it uh, we've been fortunate that uh, the ones that we have had to remove various uh, fake cactuses and uh, whatnot have been, we've been able to get out and 
uh, allow the animal to survive. But um, I would be very careful about sticking fake plants, particularly in with bearded dragons. <laughs> Mark, you've you've stolen my thunder there. I was go- I was going to talk about that specific topic. Well, with amphibians more than um, um, our reptile, reptile. So, um, and I've I've certainly had a fair number of frogs over the years where they've ingested a fake frond um, from a plant, um, and I've had to do various things to extract the two um, from each other, um, and that could be just managing to briefly sedated and, and go from an oral approach and manage to grab it out and others I've had to do a ciliotomy for them and I'm sure you've had to do the same as well but it's amazing the size of the of the plastic um, plant that they can end up ingesting there um, I don't think I've had similar thank goodness with with any of the beardies but I'm not surprised that 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 you've experienced that or 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 almost experienced it in in bearded dragons so yeah i'm I'm dead against putting fake plants or plastic plants in reptile or amphibian enclosures because uh, i think it's a recipe for disaster because they i think that you know i mean sometimes it's I think that they're fixated on that that plant, but at other times it's just a a secondary ingestion that that they have a cricket or something that hops onto that frond or that plant and they're they're trying to eat that cricket and they end up ingesting the whole the whole frond where the crickets landed and they eat both at once. Amphibians, I know with my frogs that um, uh, various fingers or uh, tongs used to hold insects feeding them or. Anything that's in the vague vicinity will will be tried to be stuffed in the the mouth of the um the green tree frogs. They're very keen to eat whatever they can. So I think you're exactly right. I think that um, if they see a cricket wandering over the the end of a, a fake fern, um, they're perfectly happy to stuff it all in their mouth and uh, only afterwards realise that they've made an error in judgment. Um, the bearded dragons, I think, are a little bit different in that they. You know, in the wild they are as adult lizards and there's some controversy amongst uh, uh, people who, who uh, well, veterinarians who have an interest in bearded dragons. There's a school of thought that um, the juveniles are uh, highly insectivorous and, and become increasingly herbivorous as they get older. Maybe something like 80% of their diet as little ones is as insects and uh, some reports of the exact converse. 80% of their diet might be plant material as adults. Um, but there's a school of thought now that um, that that's a high, highly variable number and some adult bearded dragons will have high insect intake and uh, other bearded dragons will eat lots of plant material so i think you do have to be careful about what furniture you put into their enclosure brendan yes most definitely <laughs> so well, I, where I, do we go I feel like <laughs> one, one of the problems with uh, podcasts yeah. like this is that um is that uh, uh we haven't given you know those lists, and I'm perfectly happy that we, you know, provide. There's some the uh, in America the ASPCA has an excellent list, and Vin has a number of them, and I I encourage people to look at those. But I suppose my take home message is, um, don't get be aware, but don't get too worked up. Encourage people to um, uh, keep their uh, ornamental house plants at a distance, um, and uh, and um, but outside of that. Uh, Maybe um, be 
um, you know, less worried about the plants that uh, that the um, the the routine sort of plants, particularly that our rabbits will have a go at. Um, I, I I tend to worry much less now than I did once. Yes. Yes, I'm exactly the same, Mark. Are there any other species we need to sort of cover or some um, exceptions that you want to chat about or any um, toxicities? I was just thinking then, um, and, you know, um, unlike my usual pattern of being so hugely prepared for our podcast, I am just um, uh, doing this on the fly, (laughs) but um, I was just trying to think through the cases of – uh, our bearded dragon cases, and I can't tell you that um, that uh, uh, despite their interest in uh, many plants, um, I can't tell you that I've seen a case where I uh, could attribute um, I could attribute uh, a toxicity to the. I know that um, it's quite well known that um, in America um, the uh, movement and light of the 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 glow uh, what are the, the the beetles they have over there that um, do a little bit of um, uh, bioluminescence exactly um, they're toxic the to bearded dragons or... and so uh, it's important to be aware of that in that country because the the uh, the lizards certainly are unfamiliar with them and will definitely have a go at them um, but I can't tell you there's I, I um, looking back across our cases I can think of a a uh, plant toxicity that um, that the bearded dragons have had. Yes, yes, and I think that's where the confusion confusion happens here, especially in Australia, with um, clients who look up diets for bearded dragons, and um, they see a lot of the references from recommendations from veterinarians or, or owners in the United States where there are, because they're a non-native animal to the US, um, there are certainly um, species of insects that, that one, and I think most of our veterinary colleagues, um, exotic vets in, in the States have seen, um, have all witnessed um, toxicity with um, bearded dragons where they have been fed fireflies and, and such mark so as a blanket rule they tend to then recommend not feeding any wild caught insects um, to bitter dragons in, in the states um, to avoid that possibility even though there would be a, a fair range of wild insects that are okay to feed them they they just keep it simple for the clients and, and suggest they don't and, and or, or even even strongly suggest that they don't feed any wild-caught insects. So we, we we have clients that are terrified of feeding any sort of wild-caught insects here in Australia to their bearded dragons, and I, I just try and explain the opposite. I say, where do they come from? They're an Australian native animal. What do they eat? And I point outside the window and I said, what's out there? And um, I, I suggest that they start feeding a, a bigger variety of, of insects that are out um, out in their backyard and, and their surprisingly local, enough, local park. I do exactly the same. I think uh, they, with that uh, increased variety of uh, insect intake, we see uh, um, an improvement in not only their uh, their general health. Um, there's obviously um, trace nutrients and nutrient balance that uh, diets of specific insect 
um, cultured insects, uh, they generate problems. Um, and so spreading it around seems to make them better. But I think the lizards are also, um, uh, you know, their quality of life improves as they, ch- you know, they're, they're, they chase insects in different fashion and uh, they do different things. So, yeah, I'm exactly the same as you, Brendan. Well, that's a surprise, isn't it? Um, yeah. So on that note, <laughs> I think we'll finish a little bit early for this episode. But, um, yeah, we will um, We'll hopefully be here next week. Now, I've got an apology to make to our listeners in that um, our last episode was was put up on the internets a little bit late. And um, as we're discussing before we went on air, Mark, it was it was my fault. Um, I forgot to hit a little button that says publish. Um, and if you don't hit that button, then um, our podcast does not get out there. And um, I delayed it for a day or two. But um, the encouraging thing was, Mark, wasn't it, that um, that we did have people who were complaining that they weren't getting their fix of the Vet Gurus. So um, we're glad that people enjoy their weekly um, Vet Guru episode and um we're happy to have all the listeners keep coming back and we want you to keep coming back. So come back again next week and we'll talk to you then. Thanks for listening to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus. Don't forget to visit us at the website vetgurus.com where you can subscribe, view show notes, listen to previous episodes and more. You can contact us via email at vetgurus at gmail.com to ask a question or just say hi. Thanks again and see you next time.